to be a smaller episode and I'm currently working on part two of the 70mm film festival. I hope you are doing well. Um, I want to start off with a quick book recommendation. I recently finished W.K. Stratton's book about The Wild Bunch and it's the making of the film and some analysis of its themes and imagery. Um, It's not the best making of type book I've ever read, I have to be honest with you. Um, it did take me a while to get through, I kind of ducked in and out of it. But I, I kind of feel, if you are interested in that film, as I am, it's one of, I think it's probably one of my favourite westerns anyway, um, it's definitely worth a read. There's quite a lot of, um, a lot, lot of background into the kind of the writing process and the, the actual shoot itself. I, 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 brutally honest, I didn't find it particularly gripping. I did enjoy it um, and I am going to recommend it because, uh, like I said, if you have an interest in The Wild Bunch, it's definitely worth checking out. But um, that's W.K. Stratton's The Wild Bunch. Now, the next film I'm going to talk about on today's episode, I actually first heard about on Brett Easton Ellis' podcast, which if you haven't subscribed, um, you can actually do so on Patreon to his podcast. It is probably my favourite podcast going um, at the moment, the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. I, I know some people seem to think he's the devil incarnate because um, he, I don't know, basically said he thinks everyone needs to chill out about Donald Trump. I, I'm, I'm not really sure what kind of where the, the utter hatred comes from, to be honest with you. I think his analysis and insight into film is absolutely brilliant. He has some great guests on the show, um, including relatively recently uh, William Friedkin, which was always interesting to listen to. However, he does do a lot of great film recommendations and I've managed to pick a few up. And if you live in the UK, you might be familiar with um, the high street store HMV and they do something called the premier collection and these are Warner Brothers releases that typically come out in America on the Warner Archives collection. There are a few kind of legacy titles, things like, you know, Casablanca, um, The Adventures of Robin Hood, but a lot of the titles that come out on the premier collection are ones which you can pick up on the Warner Archive. There's a lot of gaps as well. I really hope they kind of catch up to things with like She Wore a Yellow Ribbon and uh, Meryl's Marauders, but if you live in the UK, you might be familiar with these. And typically when they come out, they retail for about 15 quid. They normally go into a two for 25 quid offer, or occasionally you will pick them up um, in a hallowed two for 15 pounds offer. And this is where my uh, bank balance gets severely depleted because I have bought many of them over the past few years. And the film I talked, uh, I heard about on Brace Dennis's podcast, which actually there was a recent sale of Premier Collection in HMV. So I did pick up a couple. And one of them was a Robert Wise film from 1949 called The Setup. Come on. What's the matter? I ain't going tonight, Bill. I got a headache. Well, they gave me a good seat for you. Row four, section C. I told you, Bill, I got a headache. I'll be here when you get back. Julie, you always go. Don't you understand, Bill? I don't want to go no more. After Middletown the other night, I... Oh, that was different. I was off at Middletown. Off. Two hours after the fight, you still didn't know who I was. Now, Robert Wise was a really versatile Hollywood director. Um, I talked about him in the last episode on the Sand Pebbles, if you recall that, on the 70mm Festival. And if you name a genre, he's probably made a film in it. And I'm yet to watch a film of his that I haven't enjoyed or haven't appreciated. And certainly that there's quite a large filmography to go through. 
and just the, the sheer versatility of the man, I, I think I think it's quite astounding. But the film we're about today, the setup was made in 1949 and was produced by RKO based on a popular poem by Joseph Monkey March. It stars Robert Ryan as Bill Stoker Thompson, a 35-year-old semi-professional boxer. Thompson and his wife Julie, played by Audrey Totter, are at odds over where his career should go next. Thompson is just too old, too worn out to carry on, and Julie thinks and believes that just one more fight could be the end of him, whereas Stoker believes he is just a fight away from the big time. But Thompson's own manager does not think so and has colluded with the local mobsters to throw Thompson's next fight. Only Thompson is considered such a loser by his manager that he doesn't even tell him that the fight is supposed to be fixed. Thompson believes he can beat his next opponent, Tiger Nelson, and against Julie's wishes, who cannot bear to see him go another round, enters the ring not knowing that the odds are stacked so heavily against him. Sometimes the seeming simplicity of a film can disarm you, the ease of which a story is told, the subtle brilliance of the acting, the director's perfectly composed and choreographed camera movements and placement. It all seems so effortless that you only kind of pick up on its genius on a second viewing. And I got felt that when I watched the setup again and was rather had that exhilarating feeling I have when I know that I think I've watched a film that I consider to be something of a masterpiece. The film unfolds in real time and to my knowledge, I think it's one of the earliest kind of a film that uses this narrative device. It does actually predate High Noon and throughout the film's short 72 minute running time, we are repeatedly shown clocks showing this passage of time. And what's extraordinary to me is how impressively the film is able to establish character, make you care about them, and tell you such a tremendously exciting tale, all in under an hour and a half. Now, screenwriter Art Cohen, who tragically died at the age of 48, and he did actually, after this, write one of my favourite films of the Italian neorealism phase in the form of Stromboli, creates a world in which characters like Thompson's live in a kind of perpetual state of hope even though everything around them would indicate there is virtually nothing to suggest that they're never really going to amount to anything at all. The film is set in what I assume to be the fictitious town of Paradise City, which to be, appears to be anything but. It's a loud and boisterous play, and one in which a character like Thompson clearly belongs. Listen to this conversation he has with Julie. 35 in this business, you're an old man. Look, Julie. They're building this kid up, feeding him a lot of pushovers. If I can get over him tonight, that'll mean a rematch. That's a semi-wind-up, 150 guarantee. Maybe a top spot, even. Top spot? Yeah, top spot. And I'm just one punch away. I remember the first time you told me that. You were just one punch away from the title shot then. Don't you see, Bill? You'll always be just one punch away. Oh, Bill, it ain't I want to hurt you, but well, what kind of a life is this? Springfield, Middletown, Unionville, Paradise City? How many more beatings do you have to take? There's a real simplicity in the dialogue here. It's telling us quite a lot of information. This is not someone fighting in LA, Detroit, New York. He exists in these in-between places like Paradise City, the place where blue-collar 
workers could go and watch men knock seven bells out of each other and presumably forget the names of the people they've just watched the second after with the bell rings. They know what they are watching, brutal, hardcore fights, yet the combatants like Thompson believe that they are on the ascent, that this is all just paying their dues before one last shot at the big time. And there is something universal, I think, Cohen taps into. I've worked with people who are only doing that shitty job because there's something else in the pipeline. It's the business that they're going to start or their acting career or their writing career. And this crappy thing they're doing is just a means to an end. And by God, I think I've actually done it on a few occasions. And, dis and Thompson, despite being a relatively young 35, is still an old timer in this world who sincerely believes that this next fight will lead to the big time and the big cities and the big money. And he has a litany of dreams and ideas that he wants to do with Julie. Yet you realize very early on through Julie, this is a conversation that they've most likely had hundreds of times before in various other paradise cities. And Thompson's face bears the brunt of these jewels, the swollen ear, the scars on the face. Yet he's able to convince us that this might just be the one to give him his big break. Now, Rob Ryan is an interesting actor because bizarrely enough, he was quite a, um, a mainstay of my film watching youth. He's good looking, but not too good looking. And he never became like a Charlton Heston or a Humphrey Bogart. You couldn't really imagine him, I don't think it's something like Ben-Hur or Cool Hand Luke, but he does have a tremendous presence and at six foot four, a real physicality to him, a thoughtful face that can be menacing and dare I say, a tad tortured. And I say he was kind of like, he was a regular in my film watching news because I, I, I loved watching films like um, The Dirty Dozen, The Longest Day, The Battle of the Bulge, all of these on repeat. And I think, and I might be mistaken, but I can't remember seeing him in a film where he is the lead actor like he is in the setup. Now I know that he did get nominated for the film Crossfire, which I also really do need to see because there's a certain gap on my film watching. And I feel like Wise's direction in the setup really plays to his strength. Obviously, of course, there's that physicality to him and those aforementioned scars, but you also get the impression he is a devoted husband to Julie. He wants her approval. She cannot bring herself to watch him fight, yet he's always looking for her. From the changing room that has a direct view of the room they were staying at across the road, he wants her, her to believe in him, to support him one last time. Yet you also feel that this is a man that he has that knows that he's put this woman through so much torture and pain before with her having to watch him he can understand her reluctance but he still wants her there and indeed needs her there to support and believe in him and i think ryan's face really captures that sadness when julie doesn't go to the fight to see him he doesn't say anything and i think staying true to the character cohen doesn't give him some kind of dialogue where he mournfully laments her lack of appearance but it's all there in ryan's performance in his eyes the disappointment when he can't see her and women in boxing films are more often than not long-suffering their role is to be the voice of reading and to suffer for their man's pursuit of self-destruction or in his case what he sees as his affirmation the love that these women show for the men is never really enough the men believe that material gain will be enough yet it isn't they are simply unable to grasp the fact that all these women want is for them to be safe from harm. Something 
which in the boxing film can never be guaranteed. Judy wanders the street of Paradise City, desperately trying not to think about the fight, yet it's impossible. The radio is commentating on the fight. Someone has been knocked down without knowing the man's condition. It could be Stoker, injured or worse. And then there's the sounds of the crowd. The patrons in the setup are white working class men and women. They stuff food in their mouth, demanding a bloody spectacle betting on what they see they don't care if anyone gets hurt and they hurl abuse and insults at the people in the ring you get you sympathize with julie even more on how on earth has she coped with this all the time having to deal with this boxing in especially during this period of history was a far more bloody affair lord knows how anyone could ever have survived it in the first place yet like stoker the film seems to believe that he can do it perhaps this really be be the one where he's able to make good on his promise inside the fighting arena the respective combatants are separated into two groups with one half of the card in one changing room and their competition who we never see in another in Stoker's room, there's a real mix. The young fighter's ready to make his debut, sick with worry. The grizzled old-timer, Gunboat Johnson, his face mutilated by years of bouts, possibly even suffering from some kind of brain damage, trying to big himself up before his next bout. He too thinks that this might be the one time, the one fight that means he can have a shot at the big time. Then there's Luther, a young black fighter, who just might have what it takes. Stoker looks at them, offering kind words of encouragement, because deep down, he knows this assortment of fighters are indeed him. He's, he's too old to be up and coming, but he might just have a shot. He might be washed up like gunboat, but only one more fight is going to prove things either way. And when, com when Gumboat comes back after his fight in need of medical attention, he might not even make it. You are practically urging Stoker to call it a day there and then. But of course, this is not how this genre works. Gumboat is a plot device to remind you of the stakes and paradoxically the motivation for Stoker because to get to the top, he knows he has to put everything on the line and ultimately it's one of the appeals of boxing in the first place. A metaphor for life perhaps, sometimes you have to go the distance when you don't want to regardless of the risk. And it's all played out with stark unsentimentality. There is no score in the setup, no melodramatic musical flourishes, no love theme for Stoker and Julie, no triumphant motive for him. All you hear is the sound of the crowd baying for blood as the men prepare for battle. Now, RKO was known for its gritty pictures, especially in the major Hollywood studios. It often made fatalistic crime pictures and B-movies, and of course, The Incredible Citizen Kane, of which Robert Wise actually edited. Yet after the war, and with the influx of European filmmakers such as Fritz Lang, the aesthetic of the American picture changed. This was a Hollywood very much tinged with German expressionism visuals, and there is no better way to show this up in the setup. Despite the down and dirty feel of the picture, director of photography Milton Krasner's lighting is sublime, the backlighting of Julie, the use of shadow throughout the film being cast on faces and onto walls. It's gorgeous to watch, and despite being a small-scale film, Wise and Krasner make it feel utterly massive. The actors tower on the screen when projected on the home cinema. I felt like I was in the company of giants. And when Stoker's turn comes, the fight itself is thrilling to watch. Wyatt used three cameras, including a handheld one, for use at the side of the ring. And Ryan himself had been a professional boxer in his younger days. And you really get the film, the idea when you're watching the film, sorry, that you are watching an actual bout, as especially as it's all playing out in real time. There's no Rocky-style montages. You get a real sense of the ebb and flow of the flight. Stoker is clearly no Ali, and brute force might just see him through. 
And what makes the fight also so compelling is how Stoker is ultimately unaware of his grander role within it. He's supposed to lose, his manager has conspired with the mob for this to happen and there is such a lack of faith in him, no one has even bothered to tell Stoker that he's going to take the fall, it is merely expected of him like the loser he is. Now boxing in this period was heavily corrupted by the mob and Stoker is unaware of the danger he is placing himself in. As he inches towards victory, you're left with the realisation that even if he does win, this is just going to be the beginning of his rather beginning of his problems. Now this being a, sto a boxing film, of, and spoiler alert, Stoker does win. But then comes the film's bitterest blow. The mob aren't happy and Stoker must pay. And in this case, his punishment would have his hand shattered with a brick, effectively ending his boxing career. As Judy consoles him, she says they have both won. He has won. He has proved that he can win, but he's also finished. And she has won because ultimately this is he will never have to go into the ring again. It's a bittersweet film. It works because of its simplicity. It's not complicated. The characters are clear in what they're doing and why shoots the film with the economy of the editor he is. Nothing on the film is filler. Yet it doesn't scrimp or scrape in when it comes to characterization. We know exactly how Julia feels and why she feels the way she does. And the sports film is often and the sports film is often about the lessons of loss. Rocky might not win, but he does go the distance against the far better Apollo. Stoker won't get his shot at the big time, but he's proved that he has, but he's managed to prove he is no has been, no joke that some people in the crowd seem to think he is. Now at 72 minutes, I actually felt the film felt a lot longer than it actually did. Not in a bad way either. I just felt like I knew these characters and indeed this could have been realistically the second half of a two and a half hour film it sucks you into its murky world and makes you care about two people who you know have been together and through so much for so long and it's good what and it's what good economic writing and directing is all about stuck stoke looking through a window to see if julie is still in there speaks a thousand word he loves her he wants her to be proud of him yet ultimately he understands that her love for him means that she can't do the one thing he wants so well. Not a word of dialogue is spoken. And it's a scene I've gone back to several times since I've watched the setup. In fact, I think it could be one of those films that I think is something of a, a masterclass in filmmaking. And I'm hugely surprised that m there's not more people talking about it. Now, as I said before, you can pick this up on the Warner Archives collection. Um, it's now available in England on the Premier Collection from HMV. I can't recommend it enough. And like I said, it's 72 minutes. And at 72 minutes, it's, it's just one of those films, I think, that has an infinite amount of replayability. Um, I know Martin Scorsese is a huge fan of it. Um, I certainly did see, I think, some... It didn't, it didn't have the visceral impact of something like Raging Born. I certainly sympathise with its lead character a lot more than I did that film, but I definitely think you can see the influence. It's a gorgeous black and white film as well, and on Blu-ray it looks absolutely beautiful. I, I've, I've heard that there are um, the occasional 35mm prints doing the rounds as well at various revival theatres, and if one of those were to find its way into Manchester, I would certainly go and watch this on the big screen, because I definitely think that's where it needs to be seen. So that's going to be it for the setup and this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back very soon with some more content. Hopefully get that 70mm part two over to you as soon as possible. Many thanks for listening. Um, 
Um, if you want to email me, it's 24framescast at gmail.com. You can go to the blog. It's 24framescast.blogspot.com. So many thanks for listening, and I will be in contact again soon. Thank you. Bye.